I had gotten sick and I was in bed for a few years and I was getting tired of being in bed, thinking around what I wanted to do. So I sent out a focus group study to golfers that had been on a list of mine from my previous business. And it was a survey asking them multiple questions about what their pain points were in the golf industry. Right. And what I saw was not the Q&A that they answered, meaning multiple choice, but it was an open-ended question that I added, which rarely provides much fruit in a focus group study. But in this instance, what I heard was the frustration around not knowing what club to buy, feeling like every club was marketed as better. Marketing had started to become more important than performance. The balance mm-hmm. was out of that. Right. And in a moment, it matched with my moral compass. My grandmother taught uh, learning disabled children her whole life, and I was around them my whole life, and I didn't like people being taken advantage of. I felt like golfers were being taken advantage of, and I looked at my wife when I was still in bed, and I said, I'm gonna start the Consumer Reports of Golf, and she instantly said, yes, you are. Got my ass right out of bed and got to work. Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where I speak with the influencers, entrepreneurs, disruptors, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. Before we get started with our latest episode, I wanted to take a moment to welcome our presenting partner, InRange Golf. InRange is an award-winning driving range technology company that is creating a new standard in off-course player experiences and revolutionizing business success for range owners. If you're a golf facility operator looking to enhance your digital gaming experience and increase revenue, I encourage you to check them out at www.inrangegolf.com. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today my guest is Adam Beach, who is the founder and owner of My Golf Spy. And if you're a recreational golfer and you picked up a club and thought, is this the club for me? Well, this is the man that has, uh, as he puts, replacing the hype with cold, hard data. If it's not a good club, he will let you know. So we're going to dig into that. I love what Adam's been doing here since 2008, I believe, is when he launched and ramped up here. So he's been in this game for some time. So let's get going here in the Mod Golf Podcast. Adam, welcome. Thanks for joining me today. Hey, I appreciate you having me. This is what we're here for, to spread the gospel of golf. been at this for 20-some years and can't wait to hopefully let some people know that follow Mod Golf about my golf spy. I've been a fan of what you've been doing for years. I myself as the the relatable 14 handicapper, I have used your reviews many times to decide on what clubs to kind of shortlist and then choose. So love to hear the backstory here today. But to get started, I always love to ask this icebreaker question. And it's always your original connectivity and introduction to golf. So tell us about that. At what age did you first pick up a golf club? Your first awesome golf moment you can remember that puts a smile on on your face and and that power of invitation. Who invited you to pick up a golf club for the first time? Yeah, I was a baseball, basketball, football person, you know, growing up. And my dad was too growing up, but he was in business and he started playing golf. What I call is the golf flu. He caught the bug, man. He was out there every day and just talking about it all the time. Kept trying to convince me to come play. I wanted nothing to do with it. It looked incredibly boring compared to football, <laughs> baseball, and basketball. Right. But one day, we were on a trip in Myrtle Beach, and they have a ton of par three courses. Yeah. And he put me out on a par three hole to drive the cart, gave me a little short club. You know, they're 80, 90-yard holes. And for me, that was that was fun. That got me in the game. It wasn't a full round. It wasn't going to the range. I just wanted to have fun, and a par three is what got me there because I look at golf as three ways to get somebody to really play, and that's to have them hit a solid shot, 
have them get a par and have them get a birdie. And the quicker those three things happen in their life, the more likely they're going to become a golfer. And par three courses are great for that. And that's what got me hooked. Love it. Love it. The power of the par three. Just a couple of days ago, I'm here in Vancouver, BC, Canada, and we've got three municipal par three courses and one that's three minute drive. I even ride my bike up there with a couple of clubs uh, in a backpack there. And I went and shot a video that I'll be releasing next week on our Mod Golf YouTube channel just about that and saying, you know, play more par threes, bring friends that have never played golf before. So you and I are completely aligned on that one. I remember when I was a kid, the first time I played with some neighbors, well, I didn't grow up in a golf family at all and went out to a a nine-hole course, but it was a full-length course, and I didn't know what I was doing. It was an awful experience, right? So yeah, the par three courses are awesome. Okay, so before we dig into my golf spy, I want to hear the backstory of you as far as business, as far as the things that aligned for you to come together before you had the idea of my golf spy, the pain points of what you saw out there and seeing this opportunity. So tell us a bit about your background, Adam, of uh, what led up to you creating My Golf Spy. I've been in the industry 25 plus years. I actually owned another business prior to My Golf Spy. I was walking up the 18th hole. My dad was a business person, like I explained, and I didn't live with him, but I got to experience some things through him. And golf was one of those from time to time. Since I was probably 10-ish, I would shoot him business ideas because he was a successful business person and he'd always shoot them down. And tell me why that might not be the best idea to start a vending route when I was 10 years old without a driver's license. But I was walking up the 18th hole of the course he played and the internet was just starting. So this is back before a lot of people probably remember what that was like. But pro shops were the only place, green grass was the only place you could buy a golf club. Okay. Right, right. It was starting to happen. And I looked at the country club pro shop and I just knew it was going to be a dinosaur. And I looked at my dad and I said, I'm going to start the first internet pro shop. And he went, that's a good one. Yep. And that's all I needed for my dad. Bought a computer, bought a ticket to the uh, golf show in Florida. Back then, they had a directory. Unfortunately for them, had every phone number of every CEO. I called every single one of them and told them what I was going to do. The title of CEO, Wally Uline, told me to go to hell. He basically said, <laughs> we will never sell titles clubs on the internet. And how are you going to get the money through the computer screen? Obviously, those two things were wrong. Titles does sell clubs on the internet and money can trade hands over the uh, computer screen. We, so we figured that one out. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I started in college. I convinced my advisor to let me start my business, my senior year project. He allowed me to skip class because he was a golfer and uh, loved the idea. I wanted to be first, but I ended up being third. There was a company called Igo Golf that was owned by CBS, and a company called Chipshot Golf was still as probably one of the best golf commercials of all time. They had big funding behind them. I did it for $720. I started an internet pro shop, did well for eight or nine years, sold that business, and then I had gotten sick, and I was in bed for a few years, and I was getting tired of being in bed. Mm. And thinking around what I wanted to do. So I sent out a focus group study to golfers that had been on a list of mine from my previous business. And it was a survey asking them multiple questions about what their pain points were in the golf industry. Right. And what I saw was not the Q&A that they answered, meaning multiple choice, but it was an open-ended question that I added, which rarely provides much fruit in a focus group study. But in this instance, what I heard was the frustration around not knowing what club to buy, feeling like every club was marketed as better, 
marketing had started to become more important than performance. The balance mm-hmm. was out of that. Right. And in a moment, it matched with my moral compass. My grandmother taught uh, learning disabled children her whole life, and I was around them my whole life, and I didn't like people being taken advantage of. I felt like golfers were being taken advantage of, and I looked at my wife when I was still in bed, and I said, I'm going to start the Consumer Report to Golf, and she instantly said, yes, you are, got my ass right out of bed, and got to work. Love this. Love this. So for anyone out there listening, if you're a fledgling entrepreneur, you've got some ideas a product or, or a service or whatever that is, rather than just keeping it to yourself as this beautiful, bright, shiny baby that you perhaps don't want anybody to tell you is ugly, is something that people may not want. Put it out there. Adam had just said there, go ask people this we call product validation or customer validation just to get ideas, to get feedback. Because the last thing you want is to create something on time, on budget that nobody wants. So that feedback that you had, you had one idea and it turns out that revealed just by asking questions and then listening and reading what you have now, it revealed itself as far as the pattern there. So great insight there, Adam. So thank you for that. Okay, now let's keep moving forward here. So now you're formulating the idea for my golf spy. Keep going uh, and tell us more about the story. I spent about a year and a half building the business plan for it because it had never really been done. All the competitors mm. of Digest and things like that were all run and facilitated by the advertisers, meaning if it weren't for the advertisers, their lights wouldn't be turned on, the employees right. that they had. They couldn't build a corporation, a business without mm. that. So I had to figure out a way. The magazines were dying for a couple of reasons. They didn't see the future quick enough. And two, they had too many advertising eggs in the basket, meaning they relied way too much on the advertising of the companies they talked about. So the companies had control over the messaging over them. Right. And when there became a new thing, the internet, some of those dollars went from print to digital and print wasn't ready for it. So I looked at the hot list as my key North Star. And I said, look, The only reason Golf Digest really existed at that time was when they dropped the hot list. It was like when people opened their mailbox, it was a beam of gold light that came out of it that told golfers what to buy. And it was the Bible for golfers at the time. And they had staked their claim to that, but they had not yet staked their claim to that in the digital world. So like the wild, wild west, I wanted to put my flag down before they got theirs. Right. And I wanted to build trust with the most hardcore golfer in the world for a place that they could come and trust anything and everything that we put out there as something that was at least honest and had integrity behind it rather than run by the manufacturers. And I thought it would be three to five years before the manufacturers got on board with it. I knew it would be a little bit of a rub, but man, I was wrong. The manufacturers not only did not like it, almost to a man and woman and company, they hated it. Right. Hated everything we stood for. And tried to sue us, tried to do anything they could to shut us up. I'll be honest, they kept a lot of the media companies that I know quiet because of one simple thing. They didn't have a legal team at a lot of these smaller media companies and blogs when they first launched, and we did. Mm. I was really lucky to have a group behind me that knew what I was after and said, no matter who comes after you, we're going to stand up for you as a legal team. And none of these companies had a leg to stand on on any of the potential lawsuits, and they knew it. But they just wanted to threaten you to keep you quiet. But as soon as you fired back, and our biggest weapon was, if you want to sue us, great. 
and we're going to make it public for what you're suing us for. And every letter that you send us and everything you say is going to be public record. And to this day, we've never had to go to court. We have been involved in things, cease and desist. Please take this down. Please change this article to say this. Just recently, we had a manufacturer actually say they no longer are going to participate in our testing anymore because they think that our testers are being paid off because uh-huh. they didn't perform well. So this is what we're up against when you go up against these multi-million and now billion dollar corporations. Yes. But this is exactly why I think my Spy has had some level of success because the scale was so out of balance that once the consumer saw that somebody was fighting for them rather than we call it consumer first. We put the consumer first and the companies last. I don't care about the companies. I care about the golfer and the people spending their money. I don't care about the corporation trying to get them to spend more. I actually don't want golfers spending more. I want them only spending unless it improves on what they already own. And that is a philosophy they're not accustomed to because it's been ingrained in us just to think that you have to buy the next club that comes out. Love this. Love this. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you've broken a couple eggs along the way here to make your omelet. And, uh, you know, if you're not getting a couple people upset, then uh, you're probably not doing this right in the first place. You, you either got to go all the way or, or not do it at all and be very consistent with that. I want to ask you this. I'm going to flip it around a little bit here. Just back to the early days of the origin of this. Let's talk about branding a little bit. I love the name My Golf Spy. How did that come about? And were there other names you had you were thinking about? And so tell us about how you arrived at My Golf Spy. Oh, my wife wanted to kill me. I literally have folders still of lists of names. Yeah. I would say there's probably 1,500 to 2,000 on the first list. I would pare that down. But ultimately, what I decided on, I had multiple websites that I launched when I launched My Golf Spy. And the concept behind the word my was that you would take ownership of it, meaning everything was named my whatever, my golf spy, my this, my that. Got it. That was the principle. But I think it's very similar to the Facebook. The got dropped really quick. (laughs) Right. I think my probably should have been dropped too. It should have just been golf spy, but here we are. I was walking down an alleyway in Richmond, Virginia, and there was a picture of a graffiti of a spy on the wall. And I just saw the a golf club sitting over the spy's shoulder. That's what I envisioned and that's what I made. So that's it. Love it. Love it. Could you give us a couple of names that are maybe uh, safe for work that you could pass along that didn't make it? Give us one that you really liked, but your wife hated. Oh God, I don't even remember. But I can remember another one we had, which we actually launched, but it was going to be this. It was called Golf Cranium. Golf um, Cranium? Yes. Okay. <laughs> we had a search engine called golfcranium.com. It was a vertical golf search engine. And we flip-flopped them. I called this Golf Spy and that one Golf Cranium. I do remember our first logo looking much different. And my wife looked at me and she goes, yeah, that's really pretty. But an eagle probably won't work with the word spy in it. So we went with the spy guy. Fair point. Actually, I love the spy guy. It reminds me. See, I'm old enough. I remember Mad Magazine was Spy versus Spy. And I always loved that. That was my favorite cartoon in that in Mad Magazine. So I, I, I like the spy vibe here that you've got going. Okay. so. I got to ask you this as a as a business person. This is not a charity. This is not a nonprofit. So, what is your business model? How does my golf spy make money? Where did you start, and perhaps how has that evolved and seen other opportunities and other revenue streams over time over the last uh, eighteen plus years that you've been at this? Yeah. So back to the point about the print magazines. 
I felt like they made two critical mistakes. They put too many eggs in the advertising basket and they did not diversify enough to where if that stock, for example, their advertising dropped, that they had enough other diversification to be able to survive. So what I did was I created in the beginning 17 avenues of revenue that, as Tony Covey, our editor, puts it, are nickel and dimes that add up to dollars. <laughs> there were a multitude of things. It, once again, is always based on the power of the consumer. So if we help the consumer make better decisions on what they buy, so for example, we sold $20 million in even-roll putters because of a test we did. We didn't make any money off that necessarily, but if we influence those sales to go to a company, we should then get a percentage of that, which in this day and age now, it's called affiliate income. So back then, that really wasn't around. So we had created an avenue like that. We have a Japanese division. We have My Golf Spy Japan. They license our content, which takes a lot of time and effort to do all the testing. So instead of them having to do it, we do that for them. We also do take advertising, and we don't like to call it that because I don't look at it like that, but I can see where the reader would. But we only do that for companies that perform at the top of their field. And the reason why is this. I used to design golf equipment before my golf spy. All right. And what I found was it was impossible for the small guy to play on a level playing field with the Titles, the Callaways, the Taylormans. And in order to advertise as a small guy or a woman with whatever brand you had back then, the only place you could do it was in the back of Golf Digest for about $500 a month and no one saw it. So there was no chance. So when I created my golf buy, part of the theory was to make the cream of the crop rise to the top and all the junk go away. And in order to do that, there were some of these small companies like Evenroll, Snell Golf, Vice Golf, Sub 70. You go down the list of these companies that nowadays have bigger names, partly because we leveled the playing field and we gave them a place to be heard about, right? Right. Golf isn't writing about Sub 70. They're not writing about Evenroll, but guess why? Because they're not paying them any money to write about them. So we said, listen, here's what we're willing to do. If your product wins, performs in the top X percent of our testing, and we think you are a standout, whether it's in performance or as a service, we will then spotlight your product or your service to help amplify your messaging. And how we go about doing that is think about it. When a test drops on a new product like Evenroll, the product sells a lot of putters. But then three weeks later, you've published 52 other articles. That article has been pushed down to where that spike in traffic or that knowledge of the consumer knowing about that brand is back down almost to 0.0. Right. right. So how do you keep that brand, which deserves it, on the tip of golfers' tongues as many days out of the year for the most affordable rate possible so these brands can not only exist but make a name for themselves that they deserve to be made? So if you stand out like that, we then do what the industry calls content marketing. We will tell people about who you are and why people should give a damn about you because they should give a damn about you. So that is one of the main ways we did that in the beginning. We have merchandise that we sell as our own brand. There were so many different ways that we had to diversify in the beginning because I felt like if we were to survive long-term, because I looked at my gospel as a proof of concept. This okay. wasn't something that I did for the money. I did this to try to change an industry that I thought needed changing. It had gotten out of hand. So I said, look, I'll give it a few years. If it works, I will reinvest my own money 
to go to the second phase of this and build our own test facility. But if no one likes it and no one cares, I'll move on. I'll go do something else. But the reader and the consumer, it grew every year until this year, which were pretty flat. We have grown every single year. That's a testament to the consumer, I think, as much as maybe what we do for the desire for this information. So we had to do something. And in order to do something long term, if it was going to succeed, we had to not count on the advertising dollars as our number one line item in order to survive for the long term, not just for us. But I see this as a hundred year business, meaning I want this to continue on. Once I'm gone, somebody else has got to keep this going because I think it deserves to stay around. And in order to do that, you have to insulate yourself from the possible incoming damage that can be done by putting too many eggs in one basket. Got it. Got it. Yeah, that diversification piece is, is essential. We are now going to take a short break to hear about our episode presenting partner, InRange. So what is InRange? Well, InRange is a radar-based ball tracking company that enhances the driving range experience by offering the most engaging gameplay and precise ball tracking on the market. InRange is the only driving range tracking business that truly offers something for every type of visitor. They have unparalleled practice software, which includes the world's first and only practice handicap, as well as golf games and courses for the more social player. They are also the only software in the world that offers a bay versus bay link-up feature, meaning large groups can play against one each other in teams right across the entire venue. To learn more about them, check out www.inrangegolf.com. I want to double back on you talking about your testing facility. I, I see on your website, on my other screen here with the labs that you have, seems to me that for you, in order to earn that trust of the consumer, you have to prove that not only your testing facility, but the people that are testing, how can I put it? They know what they're doing, that this is authentic and this is valid, verified. So tell us about that. Also, where you started the first lab that you had or testing facility and how that has grown over the years. And also about the staff, the people that you have with you that are the testers of the equipment? Well, the whole principle behind the testing pretty much came back from when I was a child. My dad would change swings every day or a new training aid every week. Right. And as an entrepreneur or just a curious person, I look at the world in a very black and white way. Take putting a line on a ball. I would see people after Tiger became popular putting a line on the ball because they saw him putting a line on it and lining that up and the next week I would go to the course and everyone would be doing that. It was a very sheep mentality. Like, how do you know if that's even better? And so no matter what it is, driver, iron, putter, training aid, way to grip the putter, claw, whatever, let's actually put some data to this and find out if any of these work. And I look at everything as doing one of three things. It's either going to help you, you're going to stay the same, or it's going to hurt you. Right. Those are the three options when you add or take <laughs> away anything out of your bag. Right. So one of the first ones I actually did before my golf spy, the first lab, was who gets better at golf faster? People that go to the driving range first and hit driver or people that go to the putting green and putt first before a round of golf? This is pre-my golf spy, probably a couple years, but I wanted to just learn. And the handicaps were so much lower for the people that started on the putting green than right. the people that started on the driving range. And no one wants to listen to that, but it was interesting. We've done so many labs at this point. That's my favorite part of my golf spy. Whether it's a line on a ball, a claw grip, wooden tees versus all these BSTs out there telling you that you can hit it farther or more accurate. Or There's just so many things to be tested in golf. 
it's endless. So that's the part about the labs. In regards to the testing protocols, I flew around the country. I met with all the manufacturers. And the goal was to come up with the most robust, comprehensive golf club testing methodologies in the world to have what's called statistical significance, meaning if I repeated this test tomorrow, next year, five years from now, you would have a level of confidence that the result would be very similar. 80% confidence interval to 95% confidence interval, very in the weeds, data engineering type things. I wanted to make it matter. So I flew around the country, asked all the smart people in the industry how they tested, pick and choose a little bit from here, a little bit from that company, hired Tony Covey, which is smarter than me at this. I have big visions and Tony knows how to help me execute those visions. We started a testing with just the driver. That's okay. it. First few years. And the reason is because it's so complex to do this accurately and you have to have so many testers and so many shots. You really needed to perfect one test before you rolled that out across the whole bag, in my opinion. So we started with driver. We did that for a few years, just that. And then we moved on to irons, wedges, putters, fairway woods, and everything else. And now we do bags, rain gear, you name it. Anything yep. golfers buy, we test. Got it. Got it. So obviously you need a budget to purchase all of this equipment. Tell me about that. Because obviously if you want to stay completely agnostic, that if you want to make sure, and partial, maybe a better term, that you're not reaching out to these manufacturers to get stuff for free because that could taint the whole process. So how do you go about acquiring all of your equipment? Do you just go to the PGA Superstore? Or what, what, what do you do to get everything that you need to test? Yeah, it's tough. So I disagree with the reaching out to manufacturers to get the equipment yeah. because you need such a large scale of equipment to run these tests, meaning it's not just the heads. You need all the different shafts that they fit for golfers to be able to know which one works best. So when we first started, this was all out of my pocket. I bought everything from retail, but that's not a sustainable model for one. It depends on the category. So I'll take golf ball tests we just did. We buy everything from retail from the golf ball tests, and we buy it from multiple different locations. So you don't get the same lot of manufacturing because you want to get a variety of types. They might have made something in January and made something in March, and you want to get everything that they made over time rather than just in one batch. So for the ball test, we did it that way. For hard goods, we ask the manufacturers to participate. If they choose not to, we then buy it at retail. But after 10 plus years of doing this, you want the manufacturer involved. And we test to make sure they don't do anything squirrely. We test CG, CT testing. We test the balls to make sure no one's sending any like hand-picked items off the tour. But you do want them to participate for multiple reasons. They might have a new technology in a driver that they need to educate you on how to properly fit golfers in your test, similar to how people would be fit at retail. Because ultimately what you're trying to do is come up with the best testing methodologies that are most closely related to how golfers buy golf equipment in the masses. So I'll give you a quick example. Let's say uh, Callaway sent us one driver with a $5,000 shaft in it that's amazing. And we tested it at one. Well, that's unfair. And we're doing a disservice to the majority because that's not how the majority of golfers buy golf equipment. They don't have that amount of money. And that shaft isn't even available at 99% of the retail stores in the world. Right. So we, we test the way golfers buy. 
And that's evolving too. In the beginning, no one got fit when we first started testing. So you would test a regular and a stiff shaft. But now golfers are getting fit more, so we have to test that way. We test with all the shafts that the manufacturer provides at retail for a consumer, which is much more complex, but you have to evolve with the times. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask you this, just as far as the actual writing or the messaging, do you position the way you convey the information to, let's say, two different groups or maybe three different groups and those groups being that sophisticated, complete golf dork, perhaps like myself, that understands swing speeds, spin rates, all these things, and also for people that perhaps are just starting out looking to buy their first set of golf clubs, which that level of information, they won't even understand what we're talking about, first of all. So let me ask you with that, have you evolved or refined over the years as far as the messaging for the certain type of golfer that you are reviewing for in this case with that equipment? That's an intelligent question because the answer is yes. And that has evolved as well. In the beginning, I wanted to build trust with the most hardcore golf gearhead in the world. So if you look back at old testing we did, it was very complex. The writing at the top of the article was so in-depth, the basic stuff was at the bottom. We have flipped that model now, but in the beginning, we went into real depths about technology and why this worked, and the data was incredibly detailed to the point where the golf gearhead was being served. We were dedicating 80% of the content to 5% of the worldwide golfers because we wanted to build trust with them first. I eventually knew that we would have to turn that around a little bit to try to attract also the Golf Digest type reader that might be more 101, 201, 301 in the college or high school type level stuff. Yeah, yeah. So now we've kind of reversed it. We went through a company and had them interview hundreds of golfers. Read my golf spy, tell us what you love, what you hate, everything. And what we realized is there's four types of golfers that we need to serve. So now if you look down the new web design we have, the way articles are broken out, buyer guides are broken out, they're broken out to serve four different types of golfers at the right time those golfers need the message. So the guy or girl that just wants to come on and go, hey, I need a new pair of shoes, best golf shoes 2023, type it in. We rank number one, let's say. They go, well, the results will be at the top. Not much detail. They just want to trust what you tell them, click buy now, and on and away they go. But as you get further and further down the article, we're feeding different types of golfers the knowledge and education that we think they need at the right time. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you mentioned at the top of the show that in order to find out if what people wanted out there, you did customer validation or put out a survey and that revealed what my golf spy is today. Do you continue with those surveys? And the reason I ask this, because I want to know, do you really understand your audience? Do you know the demographic as far as the age spectrum, as far as women compared to men, as far as even the background, as far as the the cultural and ethnic background? Tell me about your audience, what you understand about your audience and how then you make a point of resonating with them so it's relatable. Uh, Surveys are incredibly powerful. Our comment section is a form of surveys. We have the most rabid, critical, you would think that people hate us in our comment section, but really what it is, is they're passionate and we owe them the best writing, the best testing possible. And when you don't do that, or they don't think you're doing that, they're going to be the first ones to let you know. But 
also in that comments section, 5% of that generally is really constructive about what you probably should be doing or doing better. So early on, we knew that and realized that. And we love surveys. I think we probably do more surveys than any golf outlet out there because what I hated was everyone did surveys and then they hid the results. You never knew what the results were. You would take a survey, but you would never knew the answers. So we publish all those surveys to tell people, here's what golfers are buying. Here's how much they're spending. Here's what they're frustrated with. Here's what's in their bags. Here are the companies, like we do one called the one word survey, which I think is the best one we do. Yeah. And you have to define companies by one word. And let me tell you what, you quickly see who thinks a company is all about marketing, all about innovation. So you have to pick words like marketing, innovation, leader, things like that. It's incredibly powerful to see that pop to the top or who pops to the bottom. So I love surveys, not just for how we get better, but we do it because we want companies to get better. We want them to serve the consumer better. So the more we publicly put that information out there, the more pressure there is on them, no different than with like the Callaway golf ball thing. Those off-center cores that we uncovered years ago forced them to make a better golf ball. And now golfers are getting better golf balls 1,000% guaranteed than they were before we started testing golf balls. So we try to attack it at multiple ways. We use surveys to help us get better, and we use it to help companies serve consumers better. Got it. Got it. So as far as your testers themselves, do you pull the curtain back so your audience knows who the testers are so they can see someone that's relatable? I guess my question is, hopefully all your testers aren't middle-aged white guys like you and I. Do you actually have diversification across your testers? Do you have more women testing so you can make a connection with a female audience? Or is that a direction you're looking to go in as you as you keep building out? Yeah, it's interesting. The golf ball doesn't care whether you're male, female, of middle course. handicap, high handicap, low handicap. The golf ball just yeah. doesn't care. Yeah. So what we try to do is get buckets of different types of golfers. And over the years, what we've learned is most important in those buckets is swing speed, angle of attack, and tempos. Those three things you want to bucket. And we don't care if you're six foot five to five foot two to male, female. We need a certain amount of golfers in each one of those buckets. And then we also have sub buckets that we want to fill out for how they deliver the club so that we can get enough swings to also help our AI engine called True Golf Fit to have enough swings to help every golfer know what best equipment is for them. Got it. Got it. I love this. Okay. Well, I can keep asking another 50 questions here because my my mind's just going now, but I want to show some restraint. We do want to jump over to our video conversation for our mod golf youtube channel but i do want to ask you this one more question here before we wrap this up here adam and that is about your awards with companies especially ones that you are projecting authority in this space here that having your lists or your rankings or your awards is really important to help solidify the brand So tell us a little bit about that, of how you've evolved over the years with your quality awards and the rankings that you have in order to position yourself as this unvarnished authority and reviewer in the golf equipment space. Well, first, how it started was I had some inside knowledge by my previous career and knowing people in the industry that I and others thought that the hot list was complete zero value. Right. So the reason why Most Wanted was created was to completely extinguish the hot list seal from the world. 
period, end of story. The reason was because I was confident that that was backed by advertising and I didn't think that that was right. So I wanted to give golfers and consumers an option to have something backed by performance and not marketing. And in my world, it's black and white. That shouldn't exist because it's no value to the consumer and one backed by performance should. So I needed to create it. How it's evolved is bandwidth, resources, and time. We've always wanted to do all the other ones that we're doing now, but it was me and Tony in the beginning. Right. We now have 15 to 20 people helping us do this. And now we have the ability to have quality awards where we have our own ball lab now, where it year round tests balls for quality control because you can make the best golf ball in the world once, but the key is to being able to make that ball 1 million times the exact same way. And almost no company other than Titleist has proven to be able to do that. And we wanted to build a ball lab to find out who was doing that. So then once we did that, we realized we needed to come out with more awards like quality awards, because for whatever reason, the consumer needs to see that good housekeeping seal or consumer report seal or hotless seal to have social proof that this has been tested and validated. And we would just prefer our seal over one that we think is impacted and influenced too much by other things. Love that. All right. Like I said, I've got more questions just waiting to ask you, but I got to hold off on that. So as we finish up here, why don't you let our listeners know, I'm sure almost everybody's heard of my golf spy if you're an avid golfer, but perhaps some people out there are not, but for everybody, why don't you let our audience know the best way that they can find out more about you and my golf spy? Don't need to know about me. I'm just some other person here working. It's a company place for consumers and it's mygolfspy.com. And you can find us pretty much anywhere. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, website. And we also have a site called True Golf Fit, which is an engine that helps fit people for equipment more precisely. Uh, Love that. Well, I will include, as I always do in the show notes for your episode, all of those links. So it's nice and easy for our listeners to access that. So Adam Beach, owner and founder of My Golf Spy. This has been awesome. I love the fact you are democratizing equipment and reviews and in this honest, raw way that you're not influenced by the outside forces and those outside forces, it sounds like, have worked very hard to try to knock you down over the years and you just keep on going. I just love that. So Adam, hey, thanks so much for joining me today on the Mod Golf Podcast. I really appreciate your time and your insights here. Not a problem. Thanks for having me. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation about entrepreneurship in the golf industry, you can find more compelling episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen in. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on our homepage to hear about upcoming episodes and to enter our latest golf product giveaway. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks very much for joining me. Bye for now.